This is Conquering Columbus. Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Conquering Columbus podcast. This is your co-host, Mike, here. And today on the show, we got the chance to sit down with Emily Quickshriver, CEO of The Matriots, an organization focused on encouraging and supporting women across both political parties here in Ohio, looking to run for office and helping them get elected. And early on in the show, we spent some time talking with Emily about some of the barriers that keep people from getting more involved with politics. A lot of times people feel like they can't be part of the conversation, that they're not knowledgeable enough to be able to understand politics. And that's a huge problem for the United States. A representative government should reflect the people. And if you're not able to understand the process, how can you be represented? It should not be complicated. Later, we asked Emily about why someone might support a pack like the Matriots versus supporting a specific candidate with their contributions. The people who invest in the Matriots say, I share those values with you, and I'm looking for candidates on either side of the aisle to the extent it's possible who share those values. And I may know Nan Whaley's running for governor, but I might not know that there are people running for office who share my values up in Cleveland, or there are people running for office in Toledo for a commissioner seat that also share my values. And I want to change the way Ohio functions for women. We wrap up the show talking with Emily about the long-term goals of the Matriots and what they're hoping to accomplish here in Ohio. Our plan for the long-term is to get more women engaged in the process, understanding politics, running for office, and then seeing themselves in the role of a politician. We want to help get as many women elected to office who share our values as possible. And there are numerous other organizations out there and around the state of Ohio who are teaching women to run for office. Like, what does it take? How do you create a campaign plan? How do you engage volunteers? How do you actually fundraise? How do you tell that stump speech, right? You're not practicing like my eight-year-old from eight years up until whatever year it is you decide to run for office. How do you write your 30-second stump speech and get across to people you're whole goal while you ride an elevator up with them. There are great organizations across the state of Ohio that are doing that. The Joanne Davidson Institute is doing that for Republican women. Lead Ohio is doing that for Democrat and progressive women. And there are organizations like Ohio State University's John Glenn College that are also working in this space to try to educate women on how to run for office and why they should do it. Emily was clearly very knowledgeable and Josh and I both learned a lot during our discussion. We hope that everyone here listening will as well. All right, Review's over. Let's get on with the show. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Conquering Columbus podcast. This is your co-host, Mike, here. And today we've got both Josh and I in the booth. What's going on, Josh? Not too much, dude. Just glad we got in. We were locked in up a for new, a second. new location. So if you guys hear a little bit of an echo or anything like that, I blame Josh's office. Yeah, these are like echo chambers. I mean, we got glass walls and I don't think it's ideal for recording, but it'll get done We're today. making it work. And sorry, Andy. Andy's our editor who will have a field day working on this one. So good luck, Andy. But that being said, we're excited to have a guest on the show today that is in the field of which we just had actually today a vote, which I did not go to. And she was already just looking at me like, how could you not vote? Primaries, they're important, but I missed it. That's my fault. However, Emily Quickshriver is the CEO of The Matriots, and The Matriots is a political action committee dedicated to supporting, endorsing, and encouraging women candidates for office in Ohio. Their goal is to help women get elected to office in Ohio with the hope that by getting more women into the office, Ohio becomes a more equitable place to live. And their bold vision is for 50% of elected officials to be women. But uh, Emily leads the team in that goal, and we're excited to have Emily on to talk about The Matriots' story 
their current initiatives and what the future holds for their team. Welcome to Conquering Columbus, Emily. Thank you so much, Mike. It's good to be here. Yeah. So 50%, I mean, it seems pretty logical. I think more than 50% of humans on the planet are women. What's the current percentage stand at right now? Sure. So we have currently in Ohio, if we go down from the planet and we just go to Ohio, more than 50% of the population of Ohio are women, more than 50% of the voters in the state of Ohio are women. And we're about between 27 and 29% of elected officials in the state of Ohio are women. Mm -hmm. If you go even more granular than that, and you look at just statewide elected executive offices, governor, lieutenant governor, attorney general, secretary of state, auditor, state treasurer, state, none of them are mm-hmm. women. If we look at our Ohio General Assembly, we're at about 31% of those are women, but we just have not really been able to capture the large amount of women in office here in Ohio. We mm-hmm. rank right around 40th out of 50 states for women's representation. I was following along, there's an article on kind of the worst states in the U.S. and someone said, thank God for Mississippi, because the rest of us would be at the bottom if it weren't for Mississippi. But sorry, not here to trash Mississippi. And <laughs> well, we just lost every Mississippi. Every Mississippian. <laughs> Yeah. Mississippian. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, that's probably correct. Has but, the trend been going up? So if you look at the percentages, has it been steadily increasing year over year and it's been trending in the right direction, regardless of whether it's not at that 50% level yet? So in other states, yes. So we had in 2018 something called the Year of the Woman, and a lot of women turned out to run for office and won in the same percentages as men for office across the United States. Ohio, however, has not seen that kind of outcome across the board. So we didn't have nearly as many women turning out to run for office. We do have an increase, or we have had an increase over the last five years in the amount of women in the Ohio General Assembly, which is great, but we'll see that ebb and flow as women take on new roles and new tasks and try to move their political sway somewhere else. And we mentioned in the beginning, we might have some off-the-cuff questions. If we can't answer them or they're stupid, they actually will not be that (laughs) smart. Like, my political knowledge is disappointing, and it's funny because Mike's is the complete opposite. But where I'm going is I'm curious about, like, the date of the first elected women official in office. Like, if we go back to the very beginning of the creation of the U.S. and stuff. I mean, I'm assuming that it didn't happen at all or wasn't common. Like, I've never really thought about Well, this. there was a time where women couldn't run for office or vote, right? And so, so when did that so change? Yes, uh, women's suffrage. Oh, man, you're testing my history. I'm sure Emily could answer, but I'm thinking... Nope, I'm not even going to try to guess. Go ahead. (laughs) So we just celebrated the 100th year of women's suffrage in 2020. So 1920 would have been the first year that women could vote, had the potential to vote. And still couldn't run for office. And still, so my knowledge is that they could not run for office at that point in time. I'd actually have to go and do a little bit of research Mm -hmm. myself. We have in the state of Ohio something called the Ohio Center for Women in Politics at Baldwin Wallace. And they do a beautiful job of distilling facts about not only women in politics writ large, but also for women in Ohio. Mm-hmm. And I feel like we've kind of jumped out over our skis here and gotten ahead of ourselves. So I'm going to back so up. So maybe not a terribly dumb question then, right? I mean, like, no, it's kind no, of no, like no, no, very, very relevant. Then. And I think in terms of Ohio, unfortunately, I would expect to see that whenever women did get the right to run for office, that that probably took quite a few years after that before we saw our first woman in office in Ohio. But you're right, taking it back, we jumped over a little bit. We jumped (laughs) over a little bit. It is not a dumb, and let me just say that there are no dumb questions. Mm -hmm. Hang Um, on long enough. No, no, no. No, (laughs) I, uh, I actually think in politics, a lot of times people feel like they can't be part of the conversation, that Mm -hmm. they're not knowledgeable enough to be able to understand politics. And that's a huge problem for the United States. A representative government should reflect the people. Mm -hmm. And if you're not able to understand the process, how can you be represented? It should not be complicated. Very true. But it is. It's very complicated. Yeah. So no bad questions is kind of my point. So taking a step back, Emily, can you just give us a little background on yourself and your story, kind of how you got to where you are today as CEO of the Matriots? You know, what were you doing before that? Have you always lived in Ohio? Just kind of the full background. So I was born 
born in West Virginia, but adopted by a family in mm-hmm. Ohio. And I grew up in the Columbus area in Gehanna and in Reynoldsburg, so on the east side of Columbus, and went to, as both of you did, the Ohio State University for my undergrad experience. I was really engaged and involved at Ohio State. I met my husband at mm-hmm. OSU and left OSU after having such great experiences to go to law school at Northwestern in Chicago. And my husband and I got married here in Bexley, Ohio, but we moved almost immediately after law school to Seattle, Washington, where he was stationed with the military. What branch? He was an army. He was an army JAG officer for eight years, active three Mm -hmm. years reserves. And you have to go to law school for JAG too, right? You have to go to law school for JAG. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So he went to Case Western in Cleveland. We dated while we were apart and then we moved to Seattle where he was stationed. And I worked as a law clerk for a judge on the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, a federal appellate court. Mm -hmm. And he worked as a JAG officer and he deployed to Iraq. And when he returned from Iraq, he and I moved to Washington, D.C. And I worked for a large international law firm in Washington, D.C. doing public policy, regulatory work, explaining to clients the requirements that apply to them because of the federal government's engagement in contracting with them and federally sponsored research. And then my dream job, which is what I wanted to do going into law school, opened up at Ohio State University. I wanted to be in-house counsel for Ohio State. We moved home with our three children here back to Columbus to represent Ohio State University for about six and a half years, almost seven years. And now I've been at the Matriots for a year. Today is my one year anniversary. Okay. There's a lot to unpack here, but I think the first thing that jumps to my mind is you said, hey, my dream job opened up Mm -hmm. and you're no longer doing that job. So I'm curious what changed and what made you want to get involved with the Matriots that made you want to leave your dream job to go do that? Yeah. If you asked anybody who went to law school with me, what is Emily's job going to be? Because a lot of law students, you're kind of floating around. You're like, maybe I'll be a litigator. I don't know. I said I wanted to be the general counsel at a university centrally located in the state of Ohio that is public. Right. So it really narrows down the scope of where I would want to work. And I went into that job as an assistant general counsel and moved all the way up to an assistant vice president, senior associate general counsel. But I recognized in the social justice movement through the work that we did with COVID that there's more to do in the state of Ohio. There's more to help Ohio. And I looked at my three kids. They're all girls. Right. And I thought, how can I help change the world for you so that you don't have to be in a space like this where I am today or where people before me are where we are currently. And so I took a big leap and responded to a job posting on social media for this job. Mm -hmm. I knew about the Matriots. I had heard about them. I was a Matriots member. Uh, I joined in 2019, but it was not even kind of in the realm of what I was going to do. But I said, you know, the way I can, I think, affect change for the state of Ohio and for my own kids is to do this. When was the organization itself founded, like history and background on it? It was started in 2017. There were six women who went to the Women's March in Washington, D.C. on January 21st, 2017, after the election of President Trump. And they came back to Ohio and they had a dinner and they thought about, we got to do something. Should we run for office? Like, how are we going to change the face of Ohio? And then they decided, you know what, we can do research. We can figure out what Ohio needs. None of us really want to run for office. So what do we do to change Ohio politics? And their research showed that one of the biggest hurdles for women is raising money. Women don't raise as much money as men in politics. If they raise as much money, they have to raise it through smaller donors. So a lot more donor engagement. They do not have the networks 
that men have that are available to fundraise off of. They're less likely to self-fund. And the person who raises the most money is often the one who wins, right? Because you're able to get your name out there. We were talking just a few minutes ago about seeing advertisements for candidates. All those cost money. The mailers that you get, the signs that you see, the websites, the telephone calls, the people who are knocking on your doors. A lot of that costs Money. Mm -hmm. If you can't raise enough money to get engagement with the community, you're not really there able to play. So they figured, you know what we can do to make the most impact and to reach this barrier? Let's raise money for women. Mm -hmm. And they also realized along the way that women ourselves, we don't give to politics as much. So teaching women to exercise this political engagement muscle of Let's give to politics. We give to philanthropy. Let's give to politics and try to make change there. All of those things you just mentioned regarding limitations of money and the needs of money, you almost double that when you're taking on an incumbent, right? Because the incumbents have a lot of advantages. An incumbent, for those of us like Josh who doesn't know politics very well, sorry, I had to make a subtle jab at Josh, but the incumbent it's is- no jab. I totally know what's happening. So yeah. I'm just trying to hang along to this conversation. So the incumbent is, if I got elected three, four years ago and I'm running again now, that makes me an incumbent because I have been in the office and I'm trying to win re-election versus a new- politician. The incumbent has a lot of advantages, including being able to get access to all the voters quickly through mm -hmm. address lists and things like that, right? Is that trying to remember the exact advantages, but I believe it has something to do with the ability to get your name out in front of people. So there are a number of advantages to being the person who currently holds the seat. One is name recognition. People mm -hmm. already know who you are. So as we talked about in the state of Ohio, most of the incumbents are men. So their names already out there in the community, in the district where they're located or in the city where they're located. People already know who that person is. They've already engaged with the community. So if you're an incumbent, you have that advantage. You do often also have the advantage of being able to talk about what your platform is, not just here's what I will do, here's what I have have done, mm -hmm. which is really powerful to the voter to hear. I mean, think about any decision you make on a daily basis. Do I go with the known thing or do I go with the unknown thing? Probably you're going to go with the known thing if you're like, eh, it's okay. Right. So being a challenger, and that's the term that we use of a person who's against an incumbent, a challenger. Being a challenger is often the space that women operate in. Mm -hmm. They're more likely to win an open seat. So if it's two people running for the first time or running against each other, even if it's not the first time running, neither one is the incumbent. Mm -hmm. Women are more likely to win that seat than they are to win as a challenger, but that's true across the board for challengers. And then on top of all that, we've also got the redistricting situation that we're currently going through, which I don't know if we need to touch that one. <laughs> I saw Emily just made a big like, oh man, are we going to go there? And I'm going to bring it up, yeah. but we'll see where we go with this. But so I believe it was the second or third map that the Ohio legislature has brought to the Supreme Court that has been shut down. I can't remember if it was the second or third time that happened, what, two, three weeks ago. So what has happened with redistricting is that there are three separate types of map. There's mm -hmm. a map for the U.S. House districts. Mm -hmm. There's a map for the Ohio House districts. And there's a map for the Ohio Senate districts. So we're thinking of three maps. Two of them are bunched together because they're both the General Assembly maps. Those have been rejected five times by mm -hmm. the Ohio Supreme Court as unconstitutional. They were drawn, if I take a step back, in 2015 and in 2018, our Ohio people mm -hmm. voted to amend the Constitution in the state of Ohio to say, we want fair representation. We want representation that looks like the people that 
is situated like the people and is based off the percentages of individuals who elected either Republicans or Democrats in the previous election. So it's supposed to be based off of census data. Very reasonable approach by the people of Ohio. They also created a commission and they said this commission should be bipartisan and should allow for the drawing of these maps based on both parties being in the room. And it allowed for seven people to be part of this bipartisan commission, but all of them are elected officials, all seven people. We waited for census this data mm-hmm. to come out. It was delayed by the U.S. government and this commission on redistricting met and they sat down to do map making the first time and they couldn't agree. They, on partisan lines, five people to two people decided okay, we're going to pass these maps. Those went to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court said, sorry, these are unconstitutional. They don't reflect the state of Ohio. They do not reflect the bipartisan nature and they're not appropriate for mm-hmm. the state. And that happened, like I said, five times, five times. Finally, the federal court got involved, a federal court, which federalism is a kind of a longer conversation. (laughs) But generally, the federal court tries to stay out of state problems. They say, you deal with it, state. You can figure this out for yourselves. And they said, we hope you will figure this out. And if you don't, we will use the third set of maps because that's probably the closest. The commission still did not create a map that was constitutional. So we deferred to the third set of maps for the Ohio General Assembly. Mm -hmm. So it is still an unconstitutional map under the state of Ohio's Supreme Court decisions. The commission never reached an agreement on those. They also have not reached an agreement on the U.S. House districts either. Those are deemed unconstitutional as well. And yet we will elect people this November. Using those maps. Using these maps. And the idea behind it is the way you draw the map. It's not like a person for person. Mm -hmm. Everybody has equal representation in the amount when you vote, right? It's like similar to what we do when we vote for the presidency mm-hmm. where you have certain weighting and things going on? Not necessarily. So it's not like a electoral college where when we vote for president, we kind of have a group of people who are represented by an electoral vote. Instead, what we have is a map that's drawn around a section of the state of Ohio, and it's supposed to capture a percentage of voters who are representative of the state. And so what has been challenging is that the drawing of these districts allows for them to lean significantly one way or the other. You put a bunch of voters who are Democrat voters into one district, so that's called packing, or you crack and you take where there might be a section of Democratic voters, you add a whole bunch of Republican voters who are maybe more rural, and it cracks the district apart and allows for while it would normally be a Democrat district, it might now become a Republican representative district. In Ohio, we went for Trump 54%, but we have districts that lean significantly more than that. Mm -hmm. So about 67% of our Ohio General Assembly is Republican, though 54% of our voters are. I'll challenge one thing there, which is that I think that if you look at that 54%, just because 54% of voters voted for Trump doesn't mean we'd have 54% Republicans, because I think a lot of Republicans maybe didn't vote for Trump in the previous election. I think that percentage might be a little higher. I don't know. That's just my guess. Mm -hmm. But that being said, right, so they call it gerrymandering, right? I'm not sure if you've heard the term, but gerrymandering is drawing the district lines to give yourself an advantage or your party an advantage. And it was pretty common for a long time and has slowly become more and more and more of a hot button issue that's being brought up a lot more. And The thing about it is if you look at these maps sometimes, like if you just look at it, you can see that something's wrong with it, right? I've seen even some states have maps where a district is like partially over here and then it has like a little circle in the middle of nowhere over here. And it's not, the district doesn't even connect to each other, but they've drawn it so that this little group of people that happens to be 
one side or the other. Well, we're going to put you in this district over here so that you can't impact the vote in this area, right? I'm trying to be as non-political as possible because we mm -hmm. don't run a political podcast. So please don't butcher me in the comments, but you know what I mean? So yeah. Okay. Sorry. We've gone on gerrymandering and redistricting <laughs> for a while. That's not what we're no. here to talk about. So let's talk about the Matriots. And I guess one thing to start with is the Matrix is a PAC, right? Political Action Committee, along with, I think you said you have a couple other businesses involved mm -hmm. in that. But let's talk about PACs for a second. What is a PAC? How does it work? Sure. So we do have three organizations. We have a C3, which mm -hmm. is a Matriots Education Fund. It's a nonprofit. We have a C4, which is called the Matriots Action Fund, which really is a coordinating entity for us. And then we have the Political Action Committee. A political action committee, there are a few different kinds of political action committees. So I'm going to talk about what my kind of political action committee is. We're organized under the law in the state of Ohio to create and collect member contributions, member donations, and we can pass those on to candidate committees. So every candidate who's running creates, again, under the state of Ohio, a committee. You might see like friends of so-and-so mm -hmm. or the committee to elect this person. Those are candidate committees and a political action committee can give candidate contributions to those committees in order to try to get that individual elected to office. Hey, everybody. Mike here. We're going to take a quick break to talk about one of our sponsors, One Columbus. And we are very excited to partner with One Columbus. They really, really share the same vision as us here at the Conquering Columbus podcast, which is really building up the Columbus region to be one of the most prosperous regions in the United States. And One Columbus serves as the business location resource for companies across central Ohio and around the world as those companies grow, innovate, and compete within the global economy. And they help us lead a regional growth strategy that develops and attracts the world's most competitive companies companies, it grows a highly adaptive workforce and prepares our communities for the future, inspiring innovation across the board. Their mission really is just ensuring the Columbus region is a vibrant place to build businesses and careers. So again, we really appreciate all of their support. You want to learn more about them, go check out their website, columbusregion.com. That's columbusregion.com. Thanks so much for tuning in. We'll be right back into the episode. Why wouldn't someone who's donating money just donate directly to the candidates versus, you know, donating to a PAC? So Again, for my own personal pack, the reason why you might give to the Matriots instead of giving to, in addition, I'm going to go with in addition to giving to individual candidates, mm -hmm. is sort of like the diversification of a portfolio. So for Matriots, we endorse on both sides of the aisle, but we endorse around five different values, five values that we think will lead to women's prosperity in the state of Ohio. Economic empowerment for women, access to education, equity and independence, healthy and safe communities in which to raise our families, and dominion over our own bodies. So individuals give to our pack. We have candidates who have already raised their hands. They are running for office. These are women who are running for office. They apply to us. We investigate and look into their background. We interview each of them. We talk about those values. We talk about their potential campaign strategy, their likelihood of success. And then we invest in those candidates. So the people who invest in the Matriots say, I share those values with you, and I'm looking for candidates on either side of the aisle to the extent it's possible who share those values. And I may know Nan Whaley's running for governor, but I might not know that there are people running for office who share my values up in Cleveland, mm -hmm. or there are people running for office in Toledo for a commissioner seat that also share my values. And I want to change the way Ohio functions for women. It's basically you spread that investment more by allowing a PAC to kind of direct those funds versus me, I might only donate to folks in Columbus area that I know or have heard of in local government. 
Exactly. Okay. Exactly. We give to candidates from the most local level. So school board, county commissioner, township trustee, city council, county auditor, right? All the way up through statewide races. So gubernatorial races, mm-hmm. state Supreme Court justice races, trying to influence and allow for women to take over in these spaces. Not take over, share. Take over? I, mean, I, I like, I take, like over. take over. Yeah. I mean, conquering, right? We're right. conquering, We're conquering Columbus here. here. Yeah. That's right. That's right. So mm-hmm. the PAC function, right? That makes sense. We're helping fund women elections. We're helping fund women to get in office. Is there anything else besides funding, you know, in terms of the PAC portion of this? Then we're going to get into the C3, which I think is going to be a little bit different than the PAC. But in terms of the PAC itself, right, is there rules even? Like I'm guessing, can all you do is provide funds? Like what else can you do for candidates other than say, hey, we're going to help fund your campaign? So a PAC can do many different things. The things that we tend to do are candidate support mechanisms. So Mm -hmm. in addition to providing money to a candidate, we create a community Mm -hmm. of our candidates. They are able to talk with each other about what it's like to run for office, share stories and ideas with each other, and they do that. We encourage our candidates. A lot of PACs just invest, Mm -hmm. right? Or a lot of entities just notify that you get an endorsement. They don't necessarily give money for the endorsement. So we give everyone money, but then we also provide additional support to our candidates to the extent we can. Mm -hmm. Every morning before an election, we send them an email for 30 to 60 days before an election. We send them an email that says, we're thinking of you. Here's a motivational quote for today from a woman in politics or a woman in government that might help you get through today's challenges. On the morning of elections, as we talked about today is an election day, I send an email to every single candidate who's running and tell them that I'm there with them, even if I can't be physically there with them. Additionally, just trying to provide more of the emotional support Mm -hmm. that people should have when they're running for office to know that somebody else is out there too. I can't even imagine running for office because as soon as you start running, there's going to be somebody out there digging into your entire life and looking for every little piece of it that they can throw against you in public. So I'm sure it's very, very stressful and probably not a lot of fun. (laughs) Are these candidates spread across both Republican and Democratic parties? So we endorse on both sides of the aisle. I will say that I would love to endorse more Republican women. We have a few and we have a few independents. But because of specifically the value dominion over our own bodies, that has been a challenge for some of the individuals to say, I'm endorsed by the Republican Party and I stand with choice, but I'm here for courageous. Has it historically before the Roe versus Wade situation been that females tend to lean towards the Democratic Party, or is that just kind of a mix? So there's research that shows that more women run under the Democratic Party label than do under the Republican Party label. I think that's shifting a little bit. There's some research to show that there's a focus on more Republican women running for office, but that was pre the Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization decision, which overturned Roe versus Wade. That research was conducted. So I'll be interested to see what happens for women. I think there's a possibility that the party structure for them is just incredibly challenging where you have to pick between those two things. That makes sense. So I'm curious about this. And again, this was definitely not on the outline, so we can cut (laughs) this if you like, but Jackson versus Dobbs. Mm -hmm. So the overturning of Roe v. Wade, obviously a huge monumental change and a huge struggle for a lot of women today. But the thing that I'm curious about with that decision is, do you feel as someone who's involved in politics and with local election committees, do you feel that finding a way to overturn that decision is a good solution? Or do we have to start thinking about if we want to protect those rights for choice, do we have to start thinking about other options that go through the legislative path? 
It's a very, very good question. First, I want to correct one thing because okay. that's sort of, you know, part, part of part of who I'm I am. I'm here to be corrected. It is not just a huge issue for women. It mm-hmm. is a huge issue for all of us, right? Yes. That a right that is available for women, for families, for couples is not there anymore. And I think that that's a huge challenge for all of us in Ohio, not just for women. But with that caveat. Good correction. I accept. You. Thank you. Thank you. With that, I would say that there has been at least in the legal community. You know, I had a legal hat before I had this hat. Mm -hmm. Maybe I still have a little bit of a legal hat. There has been conversation in the legal community about this particular set of decisions and particularly Roe versus Wade and what are called the emanating penumbras of privacy that Mm -hmm. were found for Roe versus Wade. So people were thinking about this long Mm -hmm. before a leaked decision in May on the Dobbs decision. There are numerous pathways for trying to figure out how to protect these rights, protect women's reproductive rights, protect freedom over people's bodies, individuals' bodies, and to protect the right to abortion for a long time. That thought has been there. And there's a legislative process for it, but there are other ways to seek that protection. And I would probably even argue, which is what I think the ACLU is arguing, is that it already exists in Ohio within Mm -hmm. our Constitution. And so it is not necessarily something that we even have to continue legislating, Mm -hmm. but that's yet to be seen. So if I understand it correctly, the decision recently said that a number of privacy put everything that was drawn from Roe v. Wade as well, put all of those rights into question, right? It's not just abortion rights that were drawn from Roe v. Wade, but I think there was a stop and frisk law that was challenged in the city of New York based on some of those laws and a couple others that made it to the Supreme Court. And so all of those past decisions now are potentially at risk due to that. So Obviously, you want to protect those rights. One of the most permanent ways, well, maybe not permanent, prohibition wasn't permanent, but (laughs) one of the most durable ways, I'll say, is passing a constitutional amendment. But that takes a lot Mm -hmm. and maybe not realistic. But protecting at the state level, if we get the right people in office, then that becomes easier. We may already have it. Mm-hmm. So there are a number of decisions that flowed from the Roe versus Wade mm-hmm. decision. I would say that there's one justice in particular on the Supreme Court who called into question the other decisions that rely on Roe versus Wade or the similar concepts behind Roe versus Wade. And so that has caused consternation or concern within the community about those decisions. But for right now, you know, our current politicians, our current governor has said, those are not questions that I want to talk about right now. Those mm-hmm. are not things I want to discuss. This is not the issue on the table. So I think that for Ohio, there are a few different pathways that folks can think about. They can think about what does our current constitution already say? What rights does it already give us in Article 1 in the Bill of Rights? Because we have a constitution in the state of Ohio Mm -hmm. that is different and on top of the constitution and the rights that exist in the United States and the federal government, which is what Roe versus Wade was arguing. Outside of getting women to run and getting more women elected. What else is your group doing? We talked about the C4, C3 organizations. It sounds like a lot of education and motivation, I'll Mm -hmm. say, is a big part of that. So what other initiatives do you have going on right now? So the PAC has historically also done research on the state of women in Mm -hmm. Ohio. We helped commission the first of its kind research on who is sitting in elected office, how many women are in elected office in Ohio across the board. Most research only goes down to a statewide level or maybe down to the General Assembly, but not all the way down to municipal 
municipal government. So the PAC commissioned this research in 2018, 2019, 2020, but we want to do more than that. So our education fund will be doing more research on who's running, who's winning, what causes people to run or win across the state of Ohio and what makes it likely that they'll be successful. We also have recognized we're very data-driven, so we recognize that, like we talked about early on, not enough women are running for office Mm -hmm. in order for us to get to parity. And so we need to encourage more women to run. We need to create the right networks for them, mentorship opportunities for them, and allow for encouragement to happen because it Mm -hmm. shouldn't be so complicated. So the education fund is working on that work. And our action fund is working mostly as a coordinating entity, but it also will be working to join some of the litigation fights here in the state of Ohio and perhaps thinking about how to convene women and women-based organizations to protect women's rights along with our C3. So I think this whole Matriot's family Mm -hmm. is thinking about the life cycle of a woman in politics and how she's going to engage in politics and what makes her successful, whether she just wants to learn about it or she wants to actually be engaged and running for office, or perhaps she's in office already and is ready to take the next step. There have been organizations and individuals there for men all along when they run for office. These are ingrained in the history of our country. And so we're here to help work with that for women in Ohio. Is there a bit of the chicken and the egg problem? And what I mean by that is men have a lot of role models and see a lot of people in office, in politics, growing up, it's always something that maybe I'll be a politician someday. That's not a hard Mm -hmm. thing for young boys to imagine. But especially in places like Ohio, where we have lower participation, lower number of women in office, right? Girls grow up without a lot of those role models. So is that a challenge getting young girls to think about getting more involved in politics in their future? Have you struggled with that? I'm guessing if girls are introduced to it, they're interested. Mm -hmm. But How do you get that message on? How do you get more young women involved with that? Absolutely. There are lots of studies that show, you know, if you hand a girl a set of doctor's tools Mm -hmm. that she's playing doctor instead of playing dollies, like maybe that is teaching her that she too can be a doctor. Seeing doctor role models helps girls grow up to want to be doctors. So a similar thing for politicians, I think you need to be able to see women in political roles to know that you have the ability to be there, but you also want to see them have impact Mm -hmm. and move the needle forward and kind of have a why. I'll give an anecdote story. So, you know, my own daughter recognizes the role that I'm in. She's 12. She is engaged in understanding. She actually helped me prep for this podcast by reading your bios. So she (laughs) helps me engage in the work that I do. And when Nan Whaley started her run for governor. And I told Lillian, you know what, Lillian, we are going to endorse Nan Whaley for governor at the Matriots. What do you think about a woman for governor in the state of Ohio? She's like, that's cool. And I said, do you think you could ever be a governor? And she said, no, I'm not a boy. I was like, oh, man, we got some work to do. (laughs) You know, we have work to do. But in the same vein, my eight-year-old, one of her favorite make-believe games is to pretend to stump speech. So she picks an issue that she cares about and she'll stand up and she'll give a fake name and she'll be like, I'm Allison Grayskull and I'm running for school board and I'm doing it because I want to change the way schools operate. You know, and so she is already living into, I take her to see politicians in action and she is performing those as her make-believe skits. So my hope is that Mm -hmm. by allowing young girls and young boys to see women in politics, it just becomes the norm that it's not a woman politician, it's just a politician. It's not a lady doctor, it's just a doctor. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. It makes total sense. It's exciting to see. And I'm hopeful to see a lot more women running in the near future here in Ohio as we go into uh, into elections, right? We're heading right into it. And we got Mm -hmm. November elections coming up, midterms. 
It is midterms. Okay. We are at midterms. So the even years are midterms. Yep. The odd years are local elections. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then the next even year is the presidential election. So Correct. we are in a midterm. 2024 presidential, 2022 mm-hmm. midterm. Yep. yep. Man, you know, I knew that. And now I'm just like questioning everything I know about politics. Talking with you because I didn't mean to do that. I didn't mean I know, to do that. No, I appreciate it because it's always good to talk to someone who is a little more engaged and a little smarter than you to give you some perspective. So what do the next three to five years look like with the matrix? What's your plan for the long term? Our plan for the long term is to get more women engaged in the process, understanding politics, running for office and then seeing themselves in the role Mm -hmm. of a politician. We want to help get as many women elected to office who share our values Mm -hmm. as possible. And there are numerous other organizations out there around the state of Ohio who are teaching women to run for office. Like, what does it take? How do you create a campaign plan? How do you engage volunteers? How do you actually fundraise? How do you tell that stump speech, right? You're not practicing like my eight-year-old from eight years up until whatever year it is you decide to run for office. How do you write your 30-second stump speech and get across to people you're whole goal while you ride an elevator up with them. There are great organizations across the state of Ohio that are doing that. The Joanne Davidson Institute is doing that for Republican women. Lead Ohio is doing that for Democrat and progressive women. And there are organizations like Ohio State University's John Glenn College that are also working in this space to try to educate women on how to run for office and why they should do it. Fantastic. And I think, Josh, you got any other questions before we head towards our last questions here? I got nothing. Fantastic. couple last questions for you here, and then we'll get you out of here. But first one is, do you have any advice for our listeners? And just so you're aware, we do have slightly more men than women listening. Typically, I expect we'll see a few more women out there listening on this one, but mostly men, 60, 40, something like that. And typically in that young professional category. So 20 to 35, we do have some folks across the spectrum, but that's kind of our typical audience here in Columbus. My advice for your listeners would be invite me over for scotch and a discussion about politics. Good advice. (laughs) Right? I love a glass of scotch. So let's sit down and talk about what politics looks like, how it influences your life, because it's there every day. It's in the businesses you run, the businesses Mm -hmm. you work for, the families you're trying to have or you do have or you want to try to avoid. Politics, unfortunately or fortunately, are in our lives Mm -hmm. every day. We can try to ignore them and ignore the political influences, but there is so much happening in our world that is influenced by it that being aware of it, being active in it is helpful. I understand that engaging in it is uncomfortable, but the best way to do it is to have a conversation with someone who can really do a dialogue with you and not make you feel like, you know, your view is a question mark or we're in a very polarized society. So I would recommend sitting down, glass Mm -hmm. of scotch. I'm not a cigar person, so I'm not going to do that. But having an honest conversation about, I just wonder how this works. Yeah, I think that a lot of people are afraid to speak up and ask, right? You don't want to be that person. Oh, I don't know about politics, right? And it's kind of seen as, well, there's two groups, right? There's one that's like, hey, I don't care. I'm not going to touch that. Mm-hmm. And then there's the other group that's very, I can't believe you don't know what's going on, right? Like, how could you? And that's not a good way to get people to engage Mm-mm. and learn. So really solid advice. And the last one, it's centered around the theme of our show here on Conquering Columbus, which is live uncomfortably. And without telling you too much about why we chose that phrase for people who are conquering Columbus, what do you think of when you hear it? How does it apply to your life and career? Politics is uncomfortable. A lot of what we do on a daily basis is not the questions that I feel, the conversations that we have, the fact that I'm working to get a particular set of the population elected to office. A lot of the conversations we have are uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. I live every day in the uncomfortable and I love it, right? It pushes us to be better, to be able to say, I believe our society can do more than we're doing. And instead of being divided, we can find a common ground about this. I think women are really good at that perspective, at trying to build bridges. I live 
every day uncomfortably. I want to say that I really appreciate that this podcast appears to be moving towards more uncomfortable for yourselves, especially around women. I noticed that you have about 20% of Mm -hmm. the podcast interviewees out of 320. I'm the 322nd. 20% of them are women. Mm -hmm. 80% of them are men. So you're moving to a space of uncomfortable and having this conversation about like I came here talking just about women right Mm -hmm. and the influence we have on men but generally about women and so I love that you're living into that too by this conversation yeah and it's interesting that you point that out I'm guessing that uh, did your daughter help at all with the calculations on that one (laughs) no I did that Uh, one all myself yeah I did that all on my own and you know it's something that goes all the way back to what we talked about in the beginning which is Josh and I are men and -hmm. therefore our networks and the people we know are going to more typically be men. And if we're not conscious about our decisions, if we're not conscious about reaching out to more women to do this, then something like that can happen where here we are 300 episodes later. And you're right, we haven't had a lot of women on the show and we definitely need to work to get a few more on. But I appreciate talking to you, Emily. It's been great having this conversation and really enjoyed getting the chance to learn more about you in the Matrix. Thank you. I'm very thankful for being here. It's nice to meet you, Josh. Nice to meet you, Mike. And I'm here for conversation even off the air if you want to keep the conversation rolling. Fantastic. And Conquerors, thanks so much for tuning in. If you enjoyed that episode and you want to learn more about the Matriots, go ahead and go check out www.matriotsohio.com. Perfect. And again, if you enjoyed this episode, you want to hear more interviews just like it, go ahead, hit that subscribe button on whatever podcast app you are listening on. That will make sure you don't miss a single episode of Conquering Columbus. We release on Monday, so keep an eye out for them. Thanks so much for tuning in. We'll talk to you next week. Thank you.